question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Good day to you. I hope you all had a nice new New Year's holiday. Um, Last week I was uh, talking about um, the definition of freedom. And I think there's a faulty understanding of the meaning of freedom going around, which defines freedom as freedom from anything that might impede everyone from defining themselves and determining their own future including such things as same-sex marriage and sex changes. Advocates of this view push for even ever larger government to regulate progressive practices and coerce conformity to its goals. The success of using the court system in the civil rights struggle of the 1960s has led them to adopt this approach to instigate their program. One consequence of this has been the evolution of a two-tier society, in which 1% of the population, by virtue of their monopoly on education, wealth, and social status, effectively govern the rest without their consent. The problem with all of this is that freedom essentially is not just freedom from, but freedom for. It must be goal-directed in the ultimate service of something higher and worthwhile, be it family, city, or state at a minimum. Ultimate freedom needs to be God-directed. Freedom for its own sake becomes a cult that is ego-centered. To provide some evidence to back up his assertions, Mr. Mr. Reno turns to two social scientists who have done studies of American society. One is Charles Murray, whose book on Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960-2010, which shows how the social contract is being rewritten and how the changes have affected the poor. Our country's elite, whose progressive cultural politics have altered the moral consensus, is still dominated by whites. First, he shows how the income gap has widened significantly. More importantly, he focuses on the social gap, Now here, the moral gap stands out as being greater than the financial one. The elite group includes more than those who exercise power directly, such as those in government and heads of large corporations. It includes lawyers and college professors, even when their incomes are modest. Murray populates an imaginary town called Belmont, full of well-educated professionals. Its inhabitants include the 30 to 49 age bracket, have at least a bachelor's degree, and are managers, physicians, attorneys, engineers, architects, scientists, and media personnel. Our new upper class turns out to be about 20% of our white population. Fishtown, on the other hand, is another imaginary town composed of blue collar, service or low-level white-collar occupations, holding at most a high school diploma and account for about 30% of the white population today. The inhabitants of both Belmont and Fishtown conformed to to an overarching moral code in the 1960s for sex, marriage, and family that largely corresponded to the biblical standard for marriage and its purpose was to provide a stable basis for raising children. Then came the sexual revolution and the women's movement. Legal challenges overturned laws on contraception and the right to privacy was extended to protect abortion and sodomy. The old sexual ethic unraveled, which suited the Belmonters just fine. No-fault divorce led to an explosion of divorces in the 1970s. And finally, in 2015, the Supreme 
Supreme Court declared that people of the same sex can get married. The Bohemian Consensus, as it has been called, reflecting the values of experimentation and personal freedom now prevails. Consenting adults of whatever sex can get married, while marriage, however defined, and children are optional. However, a disparity in practice has emerged between the two groups. Belmonters teach their children to be non-judgmental, tolerant, and inclusive. They are more likely to endorse gay rights and support marriage equality. Yet Belmonters, according to Murray, live in accord with the old consensus. 85% are married, which is only 10% lower than the 1960 figures. Again, only 5% have been divorced. Fishtowners have less than 50% married couples. More than 35% have been divorced. And nearly 25% of children are being raised by single mothers. 60% of children whose mothers dropped out of high school are illegitimate. And only 30% are living with both biological parents when their mothers turned 40. In Fishtown, even when both parents remain married, reported happiness in marriage has been declining. This trend can be defined by the word collapse. And the data suggests a continuing decline in the future. Murray warns that this collapse in marriage calls into question the the viability of white working class communities as a place for socializing the next generation. When it comes to attending church, the figures reveal a reversal of expectations. Declining religiosity is known among the less educated, while among those with college degrees, attendance has actually increased. Since the 1960s, no, since the 1990s. Finally, for the bottom third of society, the problem of unemployment has increased due to a weakened work ethic. In some, the increase in dysfunctional behavior is making life in Fishtown difficult to enjoy. Progressives speak a lot about human rights, which suggests not an adherence to relativism, but a shift in focus. It politicizes moral truths, using such phrases as political correctness instead of moral correctness. Relativism suggests that everything in Belmont is permitted, which is not the case. So a better term would be non-judgmentalism, which softens moral judgments that affect us personally, allowing us to make up our own minds about what's right for us. Non-judgmentalism dismantles confident judgments about what counts as right and wrong. It is intended to open up formally regulated spheres of life. Children are disciplined only in the softest, least judgmental terms. Rules become more flexible, allowing people more room to live as they please. Does this produce a more inclusive, more tolerant society that allows for creative freedom? Reno's reply is no. He points out that, as Murray has shown us, non-judgmentalism breeds an inequality more profound and consequential than a growing divergence of income, splitting society into two realms, the functional and the dysfunctional. In the former, governed by discipline and decency, basic social institutions such as marriage thrive while in the latter, the Fishtown group, the conditions for dignified lives are undermined. Now, Rito goes on to assert that true freedom is possible only when we find ourselves, bind ourselves to something worth serving. Freedom is full of us not when it serves itself, but when it serves truths freely held. We need a Christian society not to dominate culture, but to give us a moral vision that is broader and higher than ourselves. 
Only in that context can we hope to have a life worth living. The so-called death with dignity is a rich man's luxury. Citizens of meanwhile have been deprived of life with dignity. In all, it amounts to a class war on the weak. In a Christian society, the strong must serve the weak. For Reno, non-judgmentalism has been a disaster for the poor and the middle class. It is an exploitation masked by the rhetoric of liberation. Today, those who care about the teachings of Jesus must reckon with a singular fact about American poverty. Its deepest and most destructive effects are not economic, but moral. The other sociologist Reno brings up is Robert Putnam, a Harvard sociologist who, through, through a different lens than Murray, is also concerned about the fragmentation of America into a well-functioning upper sector and a struggling lower class in his 2015 book entitled Our Kids, the American Dream in Crisis. He tries to identify social capital, which is much more difficult to do than financial capital, in terms of social trust, the breadth of social networks, and even the number of friends that people have. For the less educated, it is harder to get your act together when you are in a community dominated by a behavior that tears people apart. To put it simply, the children of dysfunctional people tend to be dysfunctional themselves and pass on their dysfunction to the next generation. I think we have a break coming up here, so I will see you shortly. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Who are you, really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Hello, I'm back again. Uh, I was, when we left, uh, we're talking about the work of a Harvard sociologist by the name of Robert Putnam, who in 2015 published a book entitled Our Kids, the American Dream in Crisis. 
he takes a slightly different approach than uh, Murray did, but uh, comes up with a very similar conclusion. Um, he tries to identify social capital in terms of social trust, the breadth of a social networks, and even the number of friends that people have. For the less educated, it is harder to get your act together when you are in a community dominated by behavior that tears people apart. To put it simply, the children of dysfunctional people tend to be dysfunctional themselves and pass on their dysfunction to the next generation. The sexual revolution has exploded the social norms that once brought order and decency to the personal and family lives of working class people. While radical feminism has undermined the clear social signals that once steered working class kids toward productive, sustainable, and complementary roles as men and women. Unlike the civil rights movement, cultural progressivism has been a top-down project, warmly welcomed by establishment institutions. Reno adds, love, giving and receiving it, is the most precious thing. We desire the freedom that comes from wholehearted service to what binds our hearts, not freedom for the sake of freedom. End quote. Disadvantaged kids don't want success, but decency and a chance to love and be loved. Reno cites the popular assumption rampant today that religion is a divisive force in society. Not so. The socially unifying role of religion in America is empirically well-established. Sociological studies show that faith is strongly correlated with social bonding. Religious commitments encourage civic involvement and build social capital. A 2006 national survey demonstrated the social benefits of belief in God and regular attendance at church. He concludes that religious faith makes for better citizens. Religious people are more likely to volunteer their time and not just for church activities. In short, religious faith makes for better citizens. Religious people are more generous and more involved. Financial generosity also increases substantially with religiosity. Yes, they are judgmental in the sense that they have definite views about right and wrong. However, strong moral views, rather than driving people apart, actually build social solidarity. They motivate us to take responsibility. What all this adds up to is that the promise of multiculturalism and its non-judgmental ethos will usher in a more harmonious society is simply false. As Reno puts it, and I quote him here, whatever one thinks of the controversial issues roiling our politics, there's a need to bridge the widening social gulf that is making our problems intractable. We need to discover a virtue that our founding fathers assumed but never named, specifically solidarity. Diversity is a lifeless statistic, whereas solidarity is a condition of sustained personal interaction and reciprocal obligations combined with internal sense of belonging. Solidarity stems from our free ascent to unity in the service of a commercial of a common end. End quote. By its very nature, individualism isolates rather than unites us with each other. Reno contends that untethered individualism is our greatest threat today. We live in a dissolving society, not a collectivist one. Our biggest challenge today is middle along with its moral consensus. Says Reno, a Christian society recognizes the importance of solidarity. Again, only the countervailing power of a healthy culture 
itself the product of a healthy religion, can keep the power of the state in check. Domestic product may make us wealthier, but it cannot unite us. How can we reduce the intrusiveness of government into every corner of our lives? Reno's solution is to call for the renewal of two institutions that predate government, specifically marriage and religion. Our primary loyalty, encountered by nature, encouraged by nature, he says, is to our parents, siblings, spouse, and children. And the most decisive influences on children come from within the family. It is there that we learn the meaning of the common good of the family unit. The meaning of peace becomes clear to us in family life, and the partnership we call marriage bridges the male-female divide. Short, marriage resolves the primal feud between men and women. If the parents achieve a workable harmony, the children learn solidarity. How to retain unity in spite of profound differences. Hopefully, they would also become able to understand society as a permanent bond between citizens, not a temporary collection of self-interested individuals. The British philosopher John Locke viewed the ideal society as a free association of individuals, unbound by duties that transcend their choices. His influence has rendered many self-designated progressives to become wary of the family, even hostile. As working class families have sunk into dysfunction, government has assumed responsibility for much of their domestic affairs. Something uh, inevitable, I suppose. Reno points out that the triumph of non-judgmentalism has created a cultural vacuum, which is increasingly filled with laws, lawyers, and courts. The Supreme Court's legalizing of same-sex marriage treats marriage as a plastic social form to be reconfigured at will and a creature of government. Freedom, therefore, becomes a creature of the political process, which is vulnerable to power shifts. As we've just seen with the outgoing of the Obama administration and the incoming of the Trump administration, political power has now replaced moral authority. On the other hand, faith makes an ultimate claim on our loyalty. When Caesar's law contradicts the law of God, divine authority trumps it. Religion is the most powerful of all limits on government. Secular powers rightly try to protect our worldly well-being. The church, by contrast, orders the lives of believers towards salvation of their souls, transcending our worldly concerns. That does not prevent believers from intervening in the civic affairs of their societies, since they have a stake in those concerns as well. Sometimes this involvement is resented, and for good reasons. But Reno contends that despite this resentment, on the whole, it is a good thing. Why? I'm going to quote him extensively here because I think it's important what he has to say. The transcendent authority of the Bible is not a threat to democracy, as some secularists would have believed. It's a crucial limit on worldly power. In a totalitarian system, all aspects of life are absorbed into the political. The same thing can happen in a democracy if we recognize no authority higher than the will of the majority. And of course, the founders of our country were aware of that. They tried to institute the system of checks and balances, uh, the th three branches of government, but also um, to overcome the, the power of the majority, a different 
standard of representation in the Senate and in the Congress. Um, the subjection of everything to politics puts freedom in peril. For that reason, if when the winds of change blow in a different administration, um, suddenly the freedoms that we've thought we had may or may not prevail. The stubbornness of faith is one of the few reliable limits on government. Now, religious liberty is increasingly being pressured by governmental and quasi-governmental agencies who want to regulate, accredit, and certify a great deal of public life. The institutional freedom of the churches is decisively important for our political culture, especially since American society no longer considers Christianity the primary source of public morality. Reno points out that every society is weighed down by its false loves, and ours is no exception. Our hearth gods are health, wealth, and pleasure. We cannot serve the common good unless we seek higher things. And at that point, I'm going to uh, take another break and give you a chance to digest all of that. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Welcome back. Um, continuing the prior discussion, um, what we need is less intellectual analysis and um, dissecting things. What we need is something that can bring us together. And one force that can do that like nothing or another is love. Now, today's adherence of, re, of a reductive materialism 
often appeal to the authority of science for their claims. And ancients understood that materialism has a spiritual appeal, surprisingly. And studying them can help us to understand why a reductive view of the human person appeals to moderns, few of whom know much or care about science. One of the ancient philosophers was a man by the name of Epicurus, which from which we get the term Epicureanism. He held that true happiness comes when we are godlike, that is, when we are as much like atoms as possible. Now, their idea of atoms was um, simply because of simplicity or indivisibility, which is what the word atom means. We're not talking about atoms as we understand them today. Um, We cannot achieve the indivisibility and indestructibility in our physical existence of an atom. After all, we invariably suffer and eventually die. But he contended that we can make our, cos- make our consciousness indivisible and indestructible. The key to attaining the state of spiritual indestructibility is to cultivate imperturbability or peace of mind. In other words, Um, not being bothered by anything. If we adopt the right attitudes, he claims, we can achieve a godlike indifference to the difficulties of life. Epicurus counseled careful discipline of desire. True pleasure, according to Epicurus, is the state wherein the body is free from pain and the mind from anxiety. We can be unperturbed and untroubled if we don't care about anything. His genius was to see the therapeutic view of materialism. Materialism can be psychologically liberating. But what about the fate of our souls? Have no fear, your soul is but a temporary configuration of atoms. Afraid of death? Remember that death is just part of the natural dissolution of all things. When you die, you will not suffer, because when you die, you will be no more. The atoms of which you are now constituted will simply go their aimless way to constitute something else. Um, Culture not only stimulates and focuses our social instinct, it provides a powerful vocabulary of love. In a long and important passage, He takes aim at Venus's power to torment us with desire. The passion of lovers is storm-tossed, inflicting the terrible pain of longing and anxious worries about betrayal. A thoroughgoing materialism can deliver us from these dangers by showing them to be illusory. If we realize that sex is just a bodily function, a matter of friction, and not spiritual communion, we can free ourselves from love's threats to our tranquility of mind. Should we be smitten, the creatures advises us to lance the first wound with new incisions to solve it, while it is still fresh with promiscuous attachments. While this may seem like a hedonistic counsel, it is not. Modern liberalism promotes this Epicurean metaphysical modesty insisting that peace and harmony are more likely if higher things are downplayed in public life. Liberals preach moral relativism, not because they really believe that all truths are relative, but because they think downplaying truth is the best way to ease social tensions in a diverse society. The intuition is simple and alluring. If nothing's worth fighting for, then nobody will fight. Epicurean wisdom often softens experience. If nothing is worth worrying about, then we won't worry. The everyday obligations of sexual fidelity and parental responsibility can be burdensome, requiring genuine sacrifice. Here, the spirit of the age goes to work, lowering our ideals until they become mere lifestyle choices. 
The message is clear. There is no firm or hard truth about how to live. For if nothing is worth sacrificing for, then nobody will need to make sacrifices. Instead of straining to fit ourselves into cultural and moral modes, we can just get on with life. We no longer need to live for the sake of higher truths. We can live for the sake of, well, life itself. Um, in this uh, fantasy world, there are no ideals. The only truth about human beings is found in the never-ending evolutionary struggle for survival. Because whether nothing we do in this vast cosmos matters, the high and mighty can do what they want, and nobody can criticize them. Which sounds just like uh, ancient pagan religion, which was served to justify the status quo of the uh, social divergence between the ruling class and the peasants. Um, Materialism denies the existence of higher things, and relativism denies we should know about them even if they did exist. The therapy of lowering our expectations can be pursued by a selective moral relativism and rhetoric of inclusion and tolerance. Our educational culture frequently employs this therapy with multiculturalism and political correctness. This allows teachers to shift attention away from questions of truth without actually engaging them. Today's middle class, increasingly dominated by the 1%, who are transferring their loyalty to a globalized capitalist system that richly rewards them, are in the same position. The therapy of materialism helps them to accept their political impotence needed to say this acquiescence promoted by our educational system serves the interests of the 1%. Materialism is attractive to um, such people because it justifies the status quo. There are no higher truths to serve. Far from revolutionary, materialism, like lowering all lowering therapies, eases the way for empire and certitude. Other ancient thinkers thought sought divine tranquility through enchantment, a ravishing of the soul by something higher. The early Christian tradition developed the way of love and the therapy of enchantment without reservation often explicitly as an alternative to the contemporary philosophies that encouraged people to accept their impotence and submit to the status quo. Um, Pining for God and yet unable to surrender to him, Augustine longed for rest. A crucial section of his confessions tells of the days and hours before his conversion. He recounts anguished moments of inner turmoil made worse by his intense desire to rest in the truth of Christ. To rest in Christ, or to use the language of the Gospel of John, to abide in him, this desire parallels the Epicurean goal of tranquility or peace of mind. The critical difference, however, is that Augustine and the Christian tradition as a whole seek stability, tranquility, and peace of mind, not through non-attachment, but through love fulfilled. Let my bones be penetrated by your love, Augustine prays with an ardor that evokes the profound desire that suffuses the King's Song of Songs. His prayer is answered. After his conversion, he writes, You pierce my heart with the arrow of your love. Augustine's reference to the divine arrow of love evokes the pagan image of Cupid's arrows. Um, symbol of love's everlasting power and that brings us to another break time so I'll finish up when we come back
It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to defendingcatholicfaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. I was discussing St. Augustine's conversion and what the difference it made in his life. As the fire clears the field of weeds, the fierce heat of love burns away, distracting, dissipating worldly desires, bringing him to rest in Christ. It is a paradox, but not an unfamiliar one. The hot, driving passion of love makes us stable, which is to say tranquil. Under love's enchantment, we become devoted to that which we love. Our hearts rest in the beloved. But a love does not make us immune to the perils of life through a cultivated indifference. The spirit of love is one of commitment. Wedding vows recklessly call for permanence for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish till death do us part. The same is true to some extent of patriotic love or the love of any human being. The way of enchantment stakes out a territory, stealing us to defend it, promising us that love's power is greater than any setback or disappointment. Even more demanding is the supernatural love of God. The saints, those Olympians of love, are not patrons of indifference. Their Christian tranquility is far more arrogant than the peace of mind sought by people like Epicurus. O death, St. Paul asks with haughty disdain, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Christian faith encourages a worldly otherworldliness not an Epicurean and postmodern otherworldly worldliness. To disenchant life, to behold all things through the eyes of critical reason, these therapies of lowering may free us from the pains of desire, but they are dry, cold, and loveless, leaving the world as it is. Like a boulder in the midst of a stream, the stable love of Christian faith alters the course of history. Now, the Constitution's promise of liberty requires us to redefine marriage so that people with homosexual desires can express their identity. This way of thinking about freedom has the upper hand today, but it is dishonest. Through an equivocal use of identity, um, Supreme Court Justice Kennedy relies on the cogency of a classical account of freedom without substituting a classical account of freedom while substituting a postmodern one. If we allow that human beings have a distinct nature, 
And freedom is the ability to live according to that nature. This is a classical view, the view of both ancient Greece and the Christian traditions. It's also the view found, presumed by the founders of our nation, our nation, who took it for granted that since we are rational animals, genuine freedom must include the liberty to make and consider arguments, even disruptive arguments, about justice, morality, and how we should live together in society. The constitutional rights of free speech and a free press, at times interpreted expansively and at other times less so, protect that liberty, acknowledging man's identity as a rational animal. We're all social and religious animals, and in the United States we enjoy constitutional rights of association and religion that protect these aspects of our humanity. European nations have not always given religion as much elbow room as it enjoys in America, but there's a common recognition that religious animals must be free to worship in accord with their most profound convictions. Pre-modern European societies accorded special rights to universities, guilds, and free cities, recognizing that social animals have distinct loyalties that must be given public expression. Marriage itself is the most basic mode of social bonding. It's no coincidence, therefore, that the Christian tradition has always insisted that free consent is necessary for valid marriage. Our social nature is frustrated rather than fulfilled when we are herded into artificial aggregates. Genuine social life requires a margin of freedom for us to choose our associations. The problem is that in Justice Kennedy's formulation, quote, identity is not in the human nature of classical philosophy. He is talking about something I can define rather than as an essential part of who I am. Identity understood in this way is not something that can be acknowledged or protected by freedom. It's just another word for freedom itself. Kennedy's formulation then is an empty tautology. The promise of liberty is the right to liberty. Freedom means living in accord with freedom. The shell game is just one instance of a dishonesty widespread in cultural liberalism. We're told that homosexuality is an inborn trait, an essential part of a person's makeup. At the same time, identity is plastic and open-minded, something to be discovered, even invented. Um, <clears throat> contradiction is a patent. When it suits progressives, they play up the fixed nature of identity, allowing them to draw upon classical ideas of freedom. Then when that becomes constricting, they shift over to the flexible self-defined meaning of identity. We're told that individuals must be free to construct their own identities and that it's oppressive to think otherwise. A similar self-contradiction is also common among many moral relativists and other proponents of lowering therapies. All truth is relative, they say, insisting on the truth of their relativism. The contradictions go deep. Many a modern liberal knows that the identity politics he acquiesces to, and even at times endorses, are illiberal. Most regret the dead hand of political correctness, yet they are unable to denounce it and rarely define, defend its victims. American culture is stuck in any number of such dead ends, many of them falsely labeled as roads to freedom. It can be argued that the dominant ethic of non-judgmentalism accords important advantages to the 1%. Non-judgmentalism is part of the secular liberal culture that sees identity as something we can define for ourselves, but not for others. That would be judgmental. This culture of permission combined with censure of those who do not obey the new rules for a world without moral rules allows our ruling class to complement itself as being socially progressive. It provides added benefit of a therapeutic moral vocabulary with which to denounce populist challenges to their power. <clears throat> Mrs. Johnson, I'm afraid the sorts of views you're expressing about sex and marriage can be very hurtful. Pointing this out rarely convinces opponents. 
pointing out error is important nonetheless. Doing so may cause those with whom we disagree to hesitate. We can embarrass and fluster with well-formulated refutations. It's even possible to introduce second thoughts, but it rarely convinces. That's because the deepest mental poverty of our time is one of imagination and courage, not reason and intelligence. Today's so-called progressives, persevering in self-contradiction, are all too human. When we can't imagine alternatives, most of us remain loyal to the ideas that dominate our minds, even when we know they're false. We can change our minds only when we are able to envision a more powerful truth. We need to see the true currency of freedom in order to free ourselves from its counterfeit. To be truly free, as the rabbis teach in their substitution of herut for herut, we must engrave God's commandments on our hearts. This then is the freedom for which Christ has set us free, to have the law of Christ engraved on our hearts. Genuine freedom is difficult to achieve because it's not so easy to do what we want. There are powers in the world that wish us to do what they want, making it hard to remain stable in our own purposes. Wealthy, well-educated parents communicate fear and anxiety to their children these days. Freed from the day-to-day struggle for survival that characterizes life for so many throughout the world, they're nevertheless filled with concern for the success of their children. They expend tremendous energy on choosing just the right private schools and tutors, and admission to a tutored, to a noted university is a life or death matter. In spite of their wealth and status, these parents feel compelled to run their children through the gauntlet of meritocratic competition. There remains little room for freedom. That's a lot of the rich. What hope for freedom is do middle class and poor people have in the face of far more immediate economic and social pressures? The ability to stand firm against worldly powers is the foundation of freedom. If we cannot be moved, we cannot be controlled. So I think we've come to an end of today's show. I wish you all a very happy and, uh, and fruitful weekend. Goodbye for now. For tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square, please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.